Uh, Take your Bibles, if you have them with me, uh, if you have them this morning, and open them with me to Matthew chapter 13. By now, your Bible probably just falls open to Matthew on its own. We've been there so long. Don't laugh. Um, That's a good thing. Um, Matthew chapter 13, and last week we looked at verses 10 through 17 and 34 and 35. And now we're going to go back to the beginning to verses 1 through 9 and then verses 18 through 23 as we look at the parable of the sower. And as we do that, I would just remind us to uh, recall what we learned uh, about the parables last week. That the purpose of the parables is to understand kingdom realities. That's why Jesus tells these stories, these uh, narrative analogies, is to communicate things about the kingdom, spiritual truths that are not maybe always perceptible or always just uh, automatically intelligible. And he uses these stories to do that. In some ways, these stories uh, do reveal kingdom truths to those who are looking to understand kingdom truths. But for those who don't want to know anything about God, don't care about the things of God, the parables actually function to continue to obscure their vision of God, to make it harder for them to understand. And so they have this both hardening and softening effect, this revealing and concealing effect. And Jesus himself reminds us of that, tells us that there in verses 10 through 17, as we saw that last week. I'll remind us also of the task associated with the parables. We're going to be looking at several of, several, several of them over the coming weeks. And our task with the parables is to do three things. One, to understand them. What is being said? What do the different characters, different um, elements of the parables symbolize? What do they represent? And what is the point of the parables? Then, after understanding it, we need to apply it. We need to internalize its message. We need to see ourselves in the parable or where that parable intersects our own lives. And then thirdly, in response to applying it to our lives, we need to obey. We need to live out the implications of the parables in our own lives. In so doing, we need God's help to hear and to understand, to see the truths of the parables. This is why Jesus says in verse 9 of chapter 13, we'll read the whole text in just a moment, but he says there, He who has ears, let him hear. And then in verse 18, before he begins to give the description of the, or the explanation of the parable of the sower, he says to the disciples, hear then the parable of the sower. Why is Jesus calling attention to the need to hear? Well, it's precisely because, as we saw last week in verse 13, Jesus says, this is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. God wants you to hear the point of the parables. He wants you to understand it, but you have to have a humble and a willing heart to understand the parables, to listen to the parables, to be able to see and to understand what is going on there, that your hearts might be changed by it. And so as we do that this morning... Let us pray and ask God to help us to hear the parable of the sower. Our Father, this is your word. From your Son to us, was to the church 2,000 years ago, it is still today. There is truth here, God, that does not change, has not changed, will not change. Help us to see it this morning. Give us eyes to see. Help us to hear it this morning. Give us ears to hear Help us to understand it and to live out its implications. God, give us hearts that, that beat with your heart. Give us hearts that want to respond to your word in, in faithfulness, in trust, in repentance of sin. Do that in us this morning, God, we pray that you might be glorified in our lives, in our church. That we might grow in 
our, our faith in Christ, that we might grow in gospel fruit and in gospel fruitfulness. So that you, so that your son, Jesus, the good news of his death in our place and his resurrection from the dead might be known throughout the world as we grow as followers of Jesus. Jesus, Son of God, would you help us to do this this morning? Would you help us to see and to hear? Help us to respond in obedience as we understand the parable. We ask this in your name. Amen. As we look today at the parable of the sower, the first of these parables in Matthew chapter 13, we will find that the parable of the sower reminds us of the necessity for the church to do two things. To one, evangelize, that is to share the gospel with people who need to respond to it in faith and repentance. And to disciple, that is to grow believers in their faith. The parable of the sower teaches us those two things, that the church needs to evangelize and disciple. That in your mind, let us look then at verses 1 through 9 and then verses 18 through 23. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Verse 18, Jesus turning to the disciples says, Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. And for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. As we seek to understand this parable, the parable of the sower this morning, which Jesus has already been so faithful to explain to us, right? Uh, I like passages like this because um, uh, there are times where I feel like I could just read it and then close our Bible, we could go home, right? Jesus has already preached the parable to us, and some of you are wishing that I would do just that, but... We have a few more minutes to go, and so, no, I'm kidding. As we seek to understand this parable, we're going to focus on three clear points that this parable is making. Three points that this parable is making, and I think they'll be relatively clear and readily available. Point number one, the gospel of the kingdom is spread broadly. The gospel of the kingdom is spread broadly. This we see in verses 3 through 9. In verse 19, we learn that uh, the gospel of the kingdom, the word of the kingdom, is what the seed represents. As we look at verses 3 through 9, we see the, the character of the sower, this individual, a sower who goes about sowing. Those of you who aren't familiar with uh, agricultural terms, a sower is just someone who casts seed, okay? 
The sower in this parable is symbolic of God, and the seed is symbolic of the word of the kingdom. That is the gospel, the good news that Jesus has come, the Son of God, to die on the cross in your place and in mine, be raised from the dead, so that by repenting from sin, turning from sin, and trusting in him, you can be saved. That's what the seed represents. And this seed, this gospel, has been communicated to all kinds of people, both Jew and Gentile. As we see in the parable, the seed falls on all different kinds of ground. Spreading the gospel broadly, spreading the word of the kingdom broadly throughout all nations, among all kinds of people, has always been God's plan. It's his modus operandi. It's his M.O. In fact, it's the salvation of the nations that is and always been, has been God's goal. But the salvation of the nations, all people of all tribes and tongues and colors of skin and everything, that is not all, that's not just a New Testament plan for God. That's an eternal plan for God. Right? The church has never been intended to be, those who are redeemed by Christ, has never intended to be just white middle class Americans. It's also for, for poor sub-Saharan Africans and, and struggling East Indians. And people living under the oppression of communist China. It's for all people of all skin colors and, and all uh, languages and all nationalities for all time. We see this certainly in a New Testament sense in Revelation 7, 9, where there John in his vision says this. After I looked, behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Who is it? A great multitude that no one can number from every tribe, from all uh, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages there on that day. Which is why Jesus can say in Matthew twenty-eight nineteen, his parting words with the disciples, go and make disciples of all nations, all nations, all ethnicities. But in the Old Testament, this same uh, principle is found all over the place. Genesis 17, there where God is uh, reminding Abraham of his covenant with Abraham. He says to Abraham that through Abraham's offspring, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Who is the offspring that uh, God is promising to Abraham? Well, it's Jesus. It's Jesus. Ultimately, Jesus and all the world will be blessed through him. In Exodus chapter 9, verses 14 and 16, we read this. The Lord says to Pharaoh, For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Why does God do what he does with Pharaoh in Exodus? So that God's name may be known in all the earth. First Chronicles 16, verses 23 and 24. David sings a song of thanks to the Lord. He says, sing to the Lord all the earth. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations. His marvelous works among all peoples. Who does God want to know about his goodness and his greatness and his grace and his love? All the nations. Everybody. Psalm 117, we read as we began worship this morning. Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples. For great is his steadfast love toward us. And the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. These are just a few, just a handful of examples from the Old Testament. But the point remains, the Lord wants and works for his name and his salvation to be known by all peoples. That's what he wants. 
He has created all human beings for a relationship that, that they might know and love and worship him in that relationship. He wants all of us to know that relationship with him. That for which we were created, we have broken by our sin and our rebellion against him. But God in his love for us has made a way that we might know a way back. And that the relationship might be restored, might be reconciled. We might be right with God again and that through Jesus. See here in this principle that the Lord is not stingy with the gospel. He's not particular with the gospel, but has, even as this sower in this parable, cast the news of the kingdom upon all sorts of people with all sorts of backgrounds and skin colors and nationalities and languages and social statuses. The sower in this parable is not a very responsible sower. Seed is expensive, especially for a subsistence farmer like he would have been. He's not being very careful with the seed and allowing it to fall on all these different kinds of ground. But the point of this parable is not to teach us about farming. The point of this parable is to teach us about what God does with the gospel. What he does with the good word of the kingdom. Right? He spreads it broadly. Upon people that we might not think deserve the gospel or ought to hear it. Even upon people who will not respond to it. But he's generous with it. He wants all the world to know that all people might know him in faith. And just as God has been gracious to send his son to die for the sins of all kinds of people. Just as God spreads through uh, the disciples and the church through the ages, even through the Old Testament and the law and the prophets, even as he spreads this word broadly to all kinds of people. We too, as those who have received the word, who have believed the gospel, who have trusted Jesus. We must share the gospel of Jesus broadly and indiscriminately as well. This gets to the point of evangelism. This is the call of the church. We are called to share the gospel, even as God shares the gospel, as he spreads the word of the kingdom. Just as a sower is sowing broadly and indiscriminately, so ought we to do the same with the gospel in our own lives. It's not for believers to know the hearts of men. Right? It's not for me to know the hearts, to know the, 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 the spiritual orientation, spiritual state of all those that I'm sharing the gospel with. That's not my responsibility. That's not yours. But it is our responsibility. It is the responsibility of believers to share the gospel anyway, broadly and indiscriminately. We cannot in this life know the hearts of men entirely. Now, you can know someone as well as you can know someone. But at the end of the day... Right? Do you really know them uh, as, we, as well as they know themselves or as well as God knows them? No, but that shouldn't deter us from sharing the gospel freely, from speaking about Jesus and the importance of knowing him as Lord, of repenting from sin. We don't, we don't hold back just because we don't know. So then not knowing whose heart is ready to receive the gospel or not, we sow broadly all the same, trusting God to cause the seed to take root and grow in the hearts of those whom he knows it will do just that. Paul, in writing to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 6 through 9, reminds them of this. He says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. And Paul is there writing to address several 
divisions that have occurred in the Corinthian church. Some people were following the teaching of Apollos. They said, I'm, I'm, I follow Apollos. Some said, I follow Peter. I follow Paul. Others were saying, I follow Jesus. And Paul is saying, look, none of us who are not God are anything. We all have a role to play. And in that, some of us share the gospel with someone the first time. Some of us come along and water the seed of that gospel. We encourage that, that gospel planting in someone's life, calling them to faith and repentance again, maybe giving a new illustration of what the gospel looks like in somebody's life. And some of us are called even to, to harvest that seed, so to speak, to bring that person to faith in Christ. Right? He said we all play a part, but, but regardless of what that part is, right? God is the one who causes the growth. And knowing that it is God who saves souls, we are the ones who just faithfully go about the work of sowing and watering the seeds of the gospel. And challenge us today as we have been, even the course of the, the, the last several months of this year, even on Wednesday nights, we've been talking about evangelism, equipping ourselves for evangelism, trying to understand the gospel more clearly, that we might communicate it more faithfully. As a church, a couple weeks ago in our Sunday morning Bible study classes, we went through a tool called Three Circles, uh, about, uh, just a, a tool to use to share the gospel. Has anyone had opportunity to use Three Circles uh, in sharing the gospel recently? This is a participation portion of the message. You can raise your hands if you have. Okay, that's all right. I pray that you're looking for opportunities to use it. Do you have people that you're praying for, that, that God might give opportunity for you to share the gospel, to plant a gospel seed? Are you praying for those people regularly? Are they people that you'll actually encounter in daily life? We can pray for, you know, politicians and other things that we don't ever know that they might know the gospel. But, but in reality, what are the odds that we're going to be able to meet with them and share the gospel with them? Let's pray about the people that we know, the people that we interact with on a daily basis. Are you praying that God will give you opportunity to share Christ with them? Pray that God would. Pray that God would give you boldness to take advantage of those opportunities. Right? Because we all have a part to play in the sowing of the gospel in the world. We are God's fellow workers, Paul says. Not that we do the saving, but God has chosen us, what might seem foolish to you sinful people, to be his means to take the gospel to the world. Are we being obedient in that? First point. Right? The gospel is sown, is spread broadly. But second point, this in verses 3 through 7 and 18 through 22, we find that many who hear the gospel will not be saved. Many who hear the gospel will not be saved. This is not a popular point to preach from the word of God on Sunday mornings in America. But it's God's word, not my word. And I don't want to entertain. I just want to deliver the meal that God has already given to us. Many who hear will not be saved. There are three different kinds of people that Jesus talks about that will hear the gospel and not respond in faith and repentance. That will not be saved even though they hear the good news of Jesus. The first person, the hardened intellectual. This is the seed that falls upon hard ground, that falls upon the path. A hard path which represents a hardened heart that is incapable of understanding the word of the kingdom. The gospel of the kingdom. For the people who, for the person who has, has hardened their heart in this way, much like that of the scribes and the Pharisees that we see throughout the gospel of Matthew, though the gospel is heard, though even it is understood intellectually, it cannot be internalized at the level of the heart. And thus Satan is able to continue to deceive and to delude the hard-hearted person in their presumed pride and arrogance against the truth of God. 
This person, we may presume, understands the contours of the gospel intellectually. Let me say that again. This is a person who can, who can understand what the gospel is and maybe even repeat the gospel message, but has not believed it and has not applied it to his own life. You may have friends like this. I have friends like this. People that I love, brilliant people, not stupid people, very smart individuals who know what the gospel is, who probably could do a better job of communicating the gospel clearly than even I could. Yet they don't believe it. Their lives have not been changed by it. Their hearts are still far from God and hardened to the truth. Jesus says this is a reality. He reminds us of the danger of that of that reality. Matthew 12, verse 30, we saw just a few weeks ago. Jesus says, whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. He says we can tell whether someone has received the gospel by the fruit that, there is, that is in their lives or whether they have not. In Matthew twelve thirty three, he says, either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. The gospel sown in the heart of a person who's, who's really believing it, really trusting in it, really repenting of sin and trying to follow Jesus. There will be fruit of that in their life. Galatians 5, and 23, the fruit of the Spirit. This is the kind of stuff we should see in the life of a believer. Things that we should be growing in. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law, Paul says. The hard-hearted person who hears the gospel, maybe even understands what it means, but has not believed it, has not trusted it, is most certainly not a believer, is most certainly not saved. Hear then this morning the caution against understanding intellectually the gospel message and continually hardening your heart toward God's good news of salvation. Hear the danger that is there in not allowing God to soften, to work, to change, to transform your heart, to love Christ most, to trust Christ most. Simply knowing it here doesn't do anything with your relationship with God. Some have said the farthest distance in all the world is the 18 inches from the head to the heart. It is, a, it is a long way to go to understand something mentally to accepting it and believing it, right, in your heart. Not that our physical heart does anything like that, but you know what I mean. In your soul, in your, in your heart of hearts, in your gut, knowing and trusting that Jesus is the way. Friend, if you're here this morning and you understand the gospel, maybe even you've been in church and a member of a church for 7,500 years. I don't know, longer than there's been a church. Yet you have never trusted Christ at the level of your heart. You know the gospel, but you don't know the Savior. Hear the word of caution today that, that apart from knowing Christ, trusting him, resting your life upon the gospel of his death in your place and resurrection from the dead, you cannot, you will not be saved. It's not what you know, it's who you know. Do you know the Savior? The first person who will hear and not be saved, the first kind of person is that hardened intellectual. The second is the fickle-hearted. The fickle-hearted, not the pickle-hearted, the fickle-hearted. This is the seed that falls upon the rocky soil. This is the person who hears the word, as Jesus says, and immediately receives it with joy. There's the gospel. Oh, I like that. Let's do that, he says. And like weeds that grow up in gravel, there's not much... For the root of the weeds to grab hold of, so they are all the more susceptible to heat and lack of, of moisture. I yesterday spent a few minutes in the front yard more than I intended weeding. We have, uh, like everyone that lives in Ventana Ranch, no grass in our front yard. It's just all rocks. Now, the good thing about having gravel is that the weeds come up easy, right? The bad thing is they spring up all over the place, 
right? So, so weeding can, can turn into quite a chore. But where you have just gravelly soil, gravelly ground, there's nothing for the roots of, of these weeds or grasses, plants, whatever that, that is growing there to grab hold of. And so I like weeding and gravel because it's a much easier job than trying to pull dandelions out of grass. Right? Because the, the roots just come right up. That's the picture of this person, of the seed that falls on rocky soil. This is the person who, who responds initially with excitement about the gospel. But as the troubles of life come upon them, namely, as Jesus says, persecution and affliction on account of the gospel. Because they profess to be a believer, they're receiving hardship. They have nothing to help them weather the storm of persecution and eventually denounce the faith that they once proclaimed and walk away, fall away. This could be compared to a person who is initially emotionally moved by the gospel because it strikes a chord of endearment in them, but who has no deeper faith in the Christ of the gospel to enable them to endure the hardships of life. You know anybody like that? Go to a revival meeting. A revival preacher preaches this really moving message. And all of these people come forward to receive Christ out of emotional exuberance or being moved in their hearts. And then one, two, three years later, where do we see those people? Back living the same kind of life they were living before. When the rubber meets the road, they really don't want the Christianity they said that they wanted or responded to. This was the problem that Jonathan Edwards, the uh, 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 colonial preacher of the 1700s, encountered in his own day. You'll recall the Great Awakening of the 1730s. The early 1730s was a time of, of, uh, of spiritual excitement in the colonies uh, of the New World. And, and, and here, preachers like Jonathan Edwards and uh, George Whitfield were going around the colonies and preaching these moving messages. And people were coming to the Lord in droves, it seemed like. But Jonathan Edwards, pastor in a small town, Northampton, Massachusetts... Two, three years later, after this great awakening, after seeing all of these people come to the Lord and respond in tears and falling on their knees and all this, he sees them going back and living the same kind of lives they were living before they made that profession of faith. And so he wrote a book, a really good book called Religious Affections. I would recommend it to your reading. It's free, available, available free online. I have a copy in my office that I will loan out to you if you promise to use gently. And in the Religious Affections... Uh, Jonathan Edwards talks about 12 signs that are not certain signs that someone is a believer. That is to say, 12 ways that you can, you can not be certain, one way or the other, that somebody's a believer. Right? One of those signs is things like, like great emotional response to the preaching of the word. That doesn't indicate somebody's actually a believer or not. The fact that somebody can know lots of scripture passages and even be able to memorize lots of scripture, that doesn't indicate that somebody's necessarily a believer. What are the things, though, that he says are certain signs that someone is a believer? There are things like someone who's increasingly, over time, growing in, the Christ, growing in Christ-like character, looking more like Jesus, acting more like Jesus, loving more like Jesus. What is Jonathan Edwards saying? He's saying that the way that you know that somebody is really a believer, someone who says that they're a believer, someone who says that they're a Christian is really a Christian, is by watching them over time. Do they endure? Do they persevere? Do they hold fast to the faith even in the midst of hardship? In Matthew 10, 22, and again in 24, 13, Jesus says this to his disciples. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. That's a promise you can take to the grave. People will hate you because you love Jesus. But Jesus says the one who endures to the end will be saved. 
Jesus promises persecution and hardship in our life for the gospel. And those who are truly saved, truly trusting in the Savior, will endure persecution and hardship all the way to the end, even to the point of death. This person, the seed that falls among rocky soil, appears to be a believer at first, but their lack of perseverance demonstrates a lack of truly saving faith even from the start. The seed that took root, the seed that sprung up, is not actually the seed of true faith and repentance. So church, be certain today that your own faith is not based in an emotional response to the gospel. Without a conscious commitment to hold to the faith, no matter what sort of persecution, ostracizing, or rejection that you might face because of it. If you are bound and determined today to follow Christ regardless, irrespective of the hardships that come in your life, then take hope, take heart that you are indeed desiring to follow Jesus rightly. That you are, you are indeed saved by the gospel. A friend of mine, a pastor in Cuba, New Mexico, uh, went on a short mission trip to China. And there in China, among the persecuted church, he encountered pastors that were baptizing new believers. And as they baptized new believers, they asked them several different questions in front of the rest of the church. One of the questions is, do you commit to follow Jesus, to remain a believer, to never denounce him, even though you may die for it? even to the point of death. And there, this new convert, new follower of Jesus, before all of those that he's being baptized in front of, right? In order for him to be baptized and welcome into the church, he's got to say yes. She's got to say yes. Because that's a reality in countries where the church is persecuted. They might die for the faith. And these Chinese pastors of a persecuted church are not wanting to baptize false converts. They want to baptize real converts. So they ask them, are you going to follow Jesus even though you may die for it? Are we so committed to Christ that way? The third kind of person that will hear the gospel but will not be saved is third, the lover of comfort. The lover of comfort. Already you're squirming in your seats. The seed that falls among the thorns is this person who hears the word and maybe makes a profession of faith with their mouth, with their lips, but for whom the world and its material possessions are the true owners of his heart. Christ is not the one that occupies his heart. It's the stuff of this world. And so when money dries up and bills pile up, or when money abounds and materials follow after, the gospel seed in that person's life is choked out by the overwhelming attachment to material possessions or the grief that comes with the lack thereof. It's no wonder that then Matthew, or Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6.24 says this, No one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The lover of comfort, the one who serves money, the love of money, cannot also at the same time serve God and that faithfully. This is the kind of person who may seem to be a believer at first and maybe even for a while. But the absence of loyalty to Christ and the gospel reveals that over time they are not really true Christians. Church, this morning I want to warn us again against the lure of the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel is the one that promises that if you'll just have enough faith that God will give you all that you could ever need or want, and that in faith you can just name and claim anything your heart desires, God will give it to you. That's the prosperity gospel. 
The reason you don't have a nice house, the reason that you get sick all the time, the reason you don't have that Lamborghini in your driveway is because you just don't trust God enough. You just don't trust him enough. That's what the prosperity gospel says. The prosperity gospel says if you have enough faith, your washer and dryer won't break. If you have enough faith, you won't have to fix your swamp cooler this summer. If you have enough faith, you won't get sick. You won't get cancer. You, you won't die tragically. That's what the prosperity gospel says. Friends, this is a lie from the pit of hell that has ravaged and deceived people of poor and depressed countries the world round in the name of Jesus. And it is only good enough to condemn those people who receive it to hell. I join with the likes of John Piper who says, I denounce, I rebuke, I damn the prosperity gospel. Because it is no gospel at all. But church, there's a softer version. There's a more insidious, not more insidious, but a, a more discreet version of this prosperity gospel. I and others have called it the soft prosperity gospel. The soft prosperity gospel teaches us at least five things. One, that suffering is not actually good for the believer, that God doesn't want you to suffer. I would say scripture, especially the new Testament would, would say otherwise God intends suffering and hardship for the gospel of Jesus, for faith in him, for our good and for our growth. The soft prosperity gospel teaches, number two, that if you work hard for God, then he should work hard for you. God helps those who help themselves. Y'all know where that is in the Bible? Nowhere. (laughs) Unless you scribbled it on the back page or something. And so uh, if you did, please tear that page out of your Bible, wherever you wrote that on, and uh, and just burn it because it's a lie. If you work hard for God, he's not obligated to work hard for you. God doesn't owe you anything. He doesn't owe me anything. He has gifted us with a way of salvation to be right with him, even though we have spit in his face. He doesn't owe us anything. Number three, soft prosperity gospel teaches that there is a perfect church for you to be a part of that tickles your every itch. That has all the right programs for you and everything you need in life. A place where people don't grumble or complain. A place where the coffee's always hot and the snacks are always fresh and the donuts are always from Donut Mart. The soft prosperity gospel teaches that there's a church like that for you. And God help us, there are churches that are trying to be that for everyone. And whether we intend to or not in trying to give everything for everyone so that we can fill our seats with more people, all we're doing is teaching them that the church exists to make you feel good about yourself. The church does not exist to make you feel good about yourself. The church exists to encourage believers in their faith to endure amid persecution, to give glory to God in all that we do in worship and to take the gospel to the nations. That's why the church exists. Number four, the soft prosperity gospel lie teaches us that if we have good stuff and an easy life, that God is pleased with us. If you've got good things in your life, God's pleased with you, the soft prosperity gospel says. You're doing okay. Not true. Not true. Number five. The soft prosperity gospel teaches that we are not as bad and sinful as the Bible tells us we are. Listen. Listen. The soft prosperity gospel teaches you to compare your sins to the sins of others. It helps. Yeah, I'm a sinner. Yeah, sure. I've done things. I've done things that I need forgiveness of, but I'm not as bad as that guy. Not as bad as that guy. I'm not pointing at you, Scott. (laughs) If anything, Scott's much better than I am, okay? The soft prosperity gospel says, says you have sin that you need forgiveness of. But it's not as bad as you think it is. 
It's not that bad. Let me give you an illustration of how, how bad sin is and, and how, how much we, we must have justice in our life. That we want justice regardless of how, how much we are slighted or how little we are slighted. And how much more the same for God. Here's an illustration of that. A few years ago, uh, somebody got a hold of my credit card information. Don't know how that happened. And, uh, and they charged $200 on my uh, Discover credit card for, uh, for a burner cell phone, for minutes on their cell phone. $200. And I, you better believe, you better believe I was angry. And so I called Discover. Number one, I'm not going to pay the $200 that I didn't spend. So I called Discover and they, they fixed it right away. And my response was not, thank you so much. I appreciate that. You had great customer service and thanks for checking for my security. No, I wanted justice for $200. I wanted justice. I was on the phone with, with whoever it was from Discover saying, who do I need to call? Who, what, what, do I need to call the police? Do I need to call the FBI, CIA, NSA? Who do I need to get on the phone? Because I want justice. And the person on the other end was going, it's, sir, it's $200. You know, we're not going to make you pay for it. We're not going to find the person who's doing that. We're not going to send our whole. We're not going to spend a million dollars in investigating fraud for $200, for a $200 charge. Look, when it's perpetrated against me, I want justice. I want justice. I'm ready to go to the Batcave to call Bruce Wayne and say, homeboy, suit up. We can go fix a problem. But look, if it's me and, and I only, only mishandled $200, before a judge, I'm going to say, judge, it's only 200 bucks. It's not that bad. It's not that bad. Look, when it's done wrong, when something's done wrong to us, we want justice and we want it immediately. But when we're the ones to wrong other people, we don't want justice quite so bad. The soft prosperity gospel encourages that in you. That your sin is not as bad as it really appears. But each sin, every sin, whether you're a murderer or you stole a pencil eraser from your, from, from your classmate sitting next to you. That sin is of infinite offense to a perfectly, infinitely holy God. And there is no justice for sin but death. The Bible says, praise God that he has paid that debt for us in his son Jesus on the cross. Don't think so small of your sin. The soft prosperity gospel is a gospel-less faith that has all of its hope and comfort in the ease and contentment and comforts of this life with little to no value for the godly fruit of suffering in our lives. It has little to no value for the discipline of modesty and simplicity for the sake of gospel generosity. The soft prosperity gospel has little to no value and hardly any need for true repentance from sin and trust in Christ alone for salvation each and every day. It quietly infects thousands of churches, churches and millions of so-called Christians in this nation alone. And it is a false gospel that uses the vocabulary of biblical Christianity to hide a lie that will condemn every person who believes it to hell. Do not believe the soft prosperity gospel. Do not love comfort more than you love Christ. Do not be distracted or dissuaded or deceived by the things that this world has to offer you. Because they don't compare to the riches of Christ. They don't compare to an eternity in the presence of God in heaven. Friends, this morning, knowing that some people, people that you know and love and are faithfully sharing the gospel with, knowing that some of them will reject the gospel, learn in response to trust God's sovereignty over salvation anyway. Knowing that we will 
hopefully, God willing, spend our lives to share the gospel. And many, maybe even most, will respond with rejection of the gospel, learn to trust God's sovereignty over salvation anyway. Romans 10, 13 through 15 reminds us this. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone. But how then will they call on him in whom they have never believed? How can they believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And so, knowing that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved, and the only way that you can call upon the name of Christ for your salvation is to hear of Christ, to know the gospel, we go and give our lives to share the gospel with people who desperately need to hear it. Amen? And so we do that. We should be regularly sharing the gospel, calling people to repentance and faith in Jesus. But do not forget also Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, Praise God for your salvation, but oh, by the way, you did nothing to be saved on your own. Friend, if you could do nothing to save your own soul, but to be gifted by God's grace to have faith in Jesus, then take comfort and learn to lean upon the sovereignty of God to save those whom he knows from all eternity past will be saved, as he likewise gifts them by his grace with faith to believe in Jesus. You can't, I can't, we can't on our own convert anyone to faith in Christ. You can't do it. And as... In the same way, new converts to the faith, because you can't bring anyone to faith, are not to be notches on your belt or on mine. Not to be, not to be trophies on a shelf to show how great of evangelists that we are. Because it's not the work that we do. Paul said, what, uh, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gives the growth. It is God who saves So if the only person that you could trust to save your soul was God through his son Jesus, then rest in the trust that the very same God will save all those he knows will be saved by grace through faith in Jesus and repentance from their sin. Spread the gospel broadly. Trust God to do what he will with every seed that falls, no matter what kind of soil or what kind of heart that seed falls upon. If you couldn't save yourself, you can't save anyone else. Praise God that he can do it for you. Many who hear the gospel will not be saved, this parable teaches. But third, it teaches that those who hear and trust will abound in gospel fruit. Verse 8, other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. Verse 23, as for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another case sixty, in another thirty. This is, I would call, the humble, trusting disciple. The one who hears and trusts that abounds in gospel fruit is the humble, trusting disciple. This is the person who does not merely hear the word of the gospel, but who hears and understands the gospel as well. Did you catch that in Jesus' explanation of this parable? Verse 19, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one snatches it away. That's the one on the hard path. 
Verse 20 is for what was sown on the rocky ground. This is one who hears the word and receives it with joy. It has no root in himself. Verse 22 as for what was sown among thorns. Thorns. This is the one who hears the word of God, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word. But verse 23 as for what was sown on good soil. This is the one who hears the word and understands it. Critical difference. The person who hears the word and understands it is the one who has understood it intellectually. Yes, he knows the gospel. She knows the gospel. But two, they have internalized it. They have applied the gospel to their own hearts. Where am I in this? Do I need this? Do I want this? Yes, I do. And in response, they trust the gospel and repent from their sin. Verse 15, Jesus quoting the prophet Isaiah again. He says, this people's heart has grown dull. With their ears they can barely hear. With their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears. And understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Friends, the true believer, the seed that falls on the good soil is the one whose eyes see, whose ears hear. And whose heart has understood and responded to God in repentance of their sin and full faith and trust in Jesus. It is fairly clear that the aspect of heartfelt understanding and application of the gospel to the inner man is what separates this individual, the humble, trusting disciple, from the others, from the other kinds of people that are not saved. In this case, the person cannot be deceived by Satan any longer. This person will withstand the persecution for the gospel with faithfulness that comes their way. And this person is the one who is satisfied in God most and first, so as to endure with steadfastness until the end and enter into eternal life. Friend, are you a humble, trusting disciple of Jesus this morning? Have you not merely heard the word, but understood it and obeyed it, responded with sorrow for your sin and a desire to be made holy, a desire to be made right by faith in Jesus? Church, this is the true believer. This is the true believer. Heaven will be filled with people like this. Hell will be filled with hardened intellectuals, the fickle-hearted, and with those who love comfort. Where do you find yourself in the parable today? Are you hearing? Are you understanding? Are you listening to what Jesus says? As he reminds us in verse 9, he who has ears, let him hear. Are you listening this morning? Or will you be like the one who has stuffed his ears and covered his eyes and hardened his heart so as not to respond in faith and obedience to the King of Kings, to Jesus? Now, church, in the same sense in which we ought to sow the gospel indiscriminately, we ought to evangelize broadly because we do not know the hearts of men. So also when we see the appearance of belief, when we see evidence of faith, even a profession of faith in Jesus, we do well to foster healthy and faithful growth in the gospel. When, when, when leaves of the gospel start peeking up above the ground, We cannot know spiritually the state of the soil underneath. Now, we can maybe assume some things or try to infer some things. But at the end of the day, we don't know for certain what sort of soil is there beneath the surface. So what do we do? We pour our lives into the lives of those who profess faith in Jesus and invest in them in this way so that they might grow, so that the gospel might be nurtured, might be fostered, might be grown in them, so that the fruit that comes will be gospel fruit, abundant gospel fruit. Investing in this way in the lives of of other individuals that that are professing faith may include a semi-private study of Scripture. Maybe just you and another person reading the Bible together. Maybe you and a small group of people. Continuing in small group Bible studies like we have on Sunday mornings here. Prioritizing in your life and helping to in the lives of others. Prioritization of corporate worship. Partnership and accountability. 
coming alongside another brother or sister, say, hey, I, I want to help keep you accountable in the faith, and I want you to do the same to me. I want you to point out deficiencies in my life. I want you to speak truth in my life. Help me to walk in repentance. Let's do that together. It might include teaching basic doctrinal truths. You just when you need to come alongside a new believer and say, hey, let me help you understand Scripture better. It may include praying with and for new and seasoned believers alike. And together sharing the gospel with the lost friends of new believers, those that live in our community. Maybe it includes giving opportunity for new believers to discover and exercise their spiritual gifts that God gives them. You know what we call all of this in the life of the church? Discipleship. Discipleship. Growing as a follower of Jesus. Why do we do it? Because we're commanded to. Matthew 28, again, the Great Commission. Jesus comes to the disciples and says to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and... This is the only imperative of all of this, these two passages. Go and make disciples. Make followers of me, of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. And teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. But it's not just Jesus who commands us to, to discipleship in Scripture. God also gives a word to the Apostle Paul to give to the young pastor Titus in Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. You want to know what discipleship looks like? It looks like this. As for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men, dudes, y'all listening? Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, ladies, listen up. Likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men. Younger men, are you listening? Younger men, be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opportunity may be put to, sh- uh, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. What does discipleship look like? It looks like that: older men coming alongside young, younger men and saying, "Brother, let me show you what it looks like to be a godly man." Older women coming alongside younger women in the church and saying, "Sister, let me show you what it looks like to be a godly woman." Model it for them in the way that you live. Help them understand why, why it's important to live the way that Scripture has commanded us to do so. How it illustrates the gospel in our own lives when we do that. Assist them as they walk and grow in their faith. Teach them to do it with somebody else and release them to disciple another believer as you take on another in their absence. Is discipleship part of your heart along with evangelism? There are many who love to share the gospel of Jesus. But as soon as someone makes a profession of faith, we often just, we just leave them there. Just hanging out there with nothing to be grounded in, to be rooted in. Do we have a, a likewise, a, a, a heart for discipleship, for seeing the, the evidences of spiritual growth, seeing that nurtured and fostered, that faith might be genuine and proved worthy on the day of judgment? Church, not knowing the hearts of men or women or children, not knowing truly their hearts so much as we can in our human limitedness, whenever we see evidence of faith in Jesus in the life of someone else, we must pour out our lives to nurture growth in Christ and a sincere, well-informed, and durable faith in them. We must. We must. Let me put it differently and in five simple words. Be discipled and disciple somebody. 
If you're a believer here today, you're trusting Jesus. You need to be discipled. You are not and will not until you have been glorified in eternity in the resurrection. Be like Jesus. You will never be as mature as Jesus. But we are called to grow in maturity in Christlikeness. So believer, whether you've, whether you've been a Christian for six months or 96 years, you need to continue to be discipled. You need to grow. You need to be challenged in your faith. You need to, to walk and to, and to expand in your understanding of God and of his word and your love for the same. And for heaven's sakes, disciple somebody. Disciple somebody. Take someone under your wing. Help them understand what it is to be in the faith, uh, to, to grow in the faith. Hold them accountable for the way that they live and for the way that they treat their wives or husbands or children. Help them to do that with grace and Christ-likeness. Be a resource. Be a help to them. Be discipled and disciple somebody. Now, many of you are saying, I, I don't know how to do that. I want to do that, but I don't know how to do that. I don't know what it looks like to disciple somebody. And pastor, can't you just do it? Yeah, I can do it some, but only, only, only a little. I can do like, you know, meet with one or two people a week. And that's about all that I have time for, for intentional discipleship. I can't do it on my own. Church, I can't disciple all of you each and every week. I need help. You know who God has given to me to help me in that? You. That's right. And you want, you want, you are capable Every disciple is every disciple is capable of discipling someone else, of helping someone else grow in faith. Mark Dever, in this helpful little book called Discipling, says this: In the life of a church, spiritual growth and health should be the norm. It should be normal to see people growing and maturing spiritually. In fact, spiritual growth is not optional for the Christian. It indicates life. Things that are truly alive grow. Dead things don't. God has gifted a church with pastors for the purposes of growth, and he has given us one another. It's within the context of all these relationships with members and pastors alike, all covenanted together, that we find the richest soil, along with a Christian family, for discipling relationships to supernaturally grow. Our doctrine and life attain their shape with the doctrine and life of the community. This is a culture of discipling. Church, I want us at First Baptist West Albuquerque to have a culture of discipleship. I want us to have a culture of evangelism. That's why we're going through our Wednesday night study, equipping ourselves for evangelism, giving ourselves tools for sharing the gospel. And I encourage you, if you've not been a part of it yet, join in with us this Wednesday night. But also with that, I want us to be a church that disciples believers. The church that other people look at and say, man, there are some there, people are growing there. Those are godly people. Something's happening. God's doing something there. So for you who think you don't have any tools for discipleship, let me uh, respond to you that, yes, indeed you do. And here are some ways to go about discipling others and uh, looking for someone to disciple, looking for someone to pour your life into. Number one, find a family member. So parents, that's primarily us, okay, with children in our homes who either are trusting Christ or have not yet. They ought to be the primary target of our discipleship. Pour your lives out into the lives of your children that they may know and love the Lord from a young age. Number two, spiritual state. We should evangelize non-Christian friends, but it's pointless to disciple non-Christian friends as if they are Christians, Dever says. You can't disciple a non-Christian. You can evangelize a non-Christian, but you can't disciple a non-Christian. So find a, somebody who is a believer. Probably somebody who's younger than you or younger than you in the faith that you can pour your life into and see them grow. Number three, 
Give priority to discipling, discipleship relationships among those with whom you are already joined in church membership. So look around in this room today. There are lots of candidates for you to disciple here this morning. And I pray that afterwards you'd spend some time finding somebody. Four, gender. Men, you disciple men. Women, you disciple women. End of story, okay? Lots of reasons we don't need to go into. Number five, age. If you're older, maybe find somebody younger than you. If you're younger, look for someone older than you to pour into your life, okay? Six, someone different from you. Don't disciple the guy who's six months younger than you and works at the cubicle next to you at work. Find someone in a different place of life. You can learn from them, grow from them, be challenged to think about life from a different perspective. Find someone who's different from you. Teachability. Find someone who is teachable, not arrogant, and thinks they know everything. But you also yourself be teachable. Some of the most growth that has occurred in my own life as a believer is as I've been pouring my life out into the life of another trying to disciple him. You would be amazed at at how you will be challenged by the thoughts uh, that come from God's word from people that you are discipling if you are teachable and open to it. Number eight, faithfulness to teach others. Disciple somebody who will then be faithful to disciple somebody else. We want a replicating, multiplying, um, um, renewing kind of cycle of discipleship. Number nine, proximity and schedules. Find somebody that's easy to meet with on a regular basis. Could be weekly, could be monthly, could be every other week. Uh, But find someone that you can commit to doing those uh, meeting together regularly in that way. Church, I pray that that our church would would develop a strong culture of evangelism and discipleship. That we might, as this parable instructs us, be ones who are sowing the seed of the kingdom broadly, trusting God's sovereignty in salvation, and that we are coming alongside everyone that we see fruit of salvation in their life or evidence of faith in Christ in their life to pour our lives into them that they might grow into a full and and knowledgeable and well-grounded faith in Jesus. And for the one who today is saying, yeah, I want to do that. I've been a believer for a long time. I've never poured my life into somebody else. I really want to do that. I want to see how God works in my life. And then there's through that. Um, This copy of this book is for you. And so the first person to tackle me after service, um, not literally, can, can have this book, but on one condition. Read it. Okay, and then make an appointment to just come talk with me sometime. We can go get lunch, we can go get coffee, but to talk about how how discipling someone in your life is going to look, how it's going to play out, and let me help you and resource you in that so that you can disciple somebody who will then disciple somebody. So I have one copy of this today. I may have more uh, uh, later in the week or later in the month, but I have one today for someone who would commit today to discipling somebody and using this book as part of their... um, as a part of their uh, uh, commitment in, in growing in discipleship. I said a lot more than Jesus did about the parable of the sower. His words are better than mine. But I pray that, they, that his words are pointing us to the words that I've spoken today. That we are sowing the gospel broadly. That we are discipling intentionally. So that every fruit, every evidence of fruit in the life of of an individual would be be that which grows into a fully formed, um, fully matured, Christ-like disciple of Jesus.